The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. Thank you all for joining us tonight. I'm Debbie Pryor, the Artistic Program Manager at Guildhouse, and it's lovely to welcome you to the summer edition of the Revision Speaker Series. So thank you for joining this, this session with Mish Grigor to discuss all things art-related in the monumental year that has been 2020. <laughs> Mish Grigor is a Melbourne-based artist who works in performance across a range of collaborative formats. Using autobiographical tools, humour and fiction, she's interested in the unpredictable, often investigating heavy topics with an experimental or humorous approach. Mish is co-director of AFIDS and One Third of Post, both performative outfits that, as a very broad definition, offer alternative and inclusive perspectives on the everyday. Welcome, Mish. Thanks, Debbie. Sorry, it always takes me a second to remember that I'm on Zoom um, and unmute myself. Uh, I may do it again. Hello, everyone. So lovely to talk to you this evening over the internet. I'm on Wurundjeri land, and I would also like to acknowledge that the sovereignty over this land has never been ceded. I live and work here, and I'm very fortunate to do that. I'm joining you, um, for anyone who's not familiar, that is uh, the land, uh, the suburb I live in is known as Brunswick, so it's over in Melbourne. And yeah, I guess I'm going to start by sort of introducing myself and my work for anyone who's not familiar, and then hopefully we'll turn it more into a conversation. Yeah, and I, I want to say thank you, of course, to Guildhouse for having me and also to Debbie especially. It's been really lovely to think about um, what it is, what are the important conversations that we need to be having and it just feels like such a great institutional support that um, everyone in Adelaide has to sort of, you know, be responsive and, and work quickly or relatively quickly in terms of starting those public conversations together. Quite delightful. And, you know, obviously, yeah, as Debbie said, 2020 has been such a huge year and I'm really interested in the narratives or the way that we articulate that this year um, to each other while we're still in it. Um, and, you know, as always, art and culture is trying to articulate the moments that we're having and uh, the moments that we have had or the moments that we want to have. So I think it's a really exciting and, and complicated time. Not always good, <laughs> but, you know, very vibrant yeah, and I'm interested in this kind of thing that's been said a lot this year about, you know, we're all in this together and the kind of uh, rhetoric around the pandemic as though it's a very uh, singular experience. And there was a lot of that particularly at the beginning. And I think now we're getting more sophisticated with understanding the ways that our stories through the pandemic are very different and that um, the kind of year of 2020 has really exposed just how different many people's lives are. And I just thought as a sort of like same storm, different boat philosophy, uh, which is more realistic, that I would sort of talk about my boat um, as a way of introducing my practice. <laughs> so my boat through 2020. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen with some images to do that. So Mish Grigor is my name. <laughs> so as a bit of background to my boat in 2020, we'll start in 2019. 
We're, so the end of 2019, I presented this work with aphids that was called Exit Strategies, and it was a solo performance work um, that was really about leaving and ideas of movement and, and travel. And it came out of a sort of series of conversations where a lot of people when I was turning around 30 had said to me, oh, if, you know, as a contemporary artist, if you want to succeed, you really need to leave Australia now. You've sort of done everything that you can do in Australia as an Australian artist. And I really resented those conversations. And it was very interesting for me where they came from. And sometimes it came from senior Australian artists who either had or hadn't made that decision and were telling me that it was like the most logical and um, strategic one that I could make for my art career. And uh, I was really interested in like what that means about the kind of ways that we're processing the cultural cringe and also the ways that we as artists sort of navigate mid-career or late career or the ways that we find our ways through. And I guess I became curious about the relationship to that or, or the spectrum or the conversation between my personal narrative and my personal career <laughs> and at the same time a growing personal understanding of um, the depths of decolonizing processes that we always have to go through as individuals, institutions, a country or, you know, the kind of failings of that or the failings of my knowledge, a big big show so I had a big kind of idea of like uh, this concept or question I came up with which was what happens if all non-Indigenous people left Australia if we just one day just there was like a big political announcement like okay if you're not Indigenous you have to get out and you have three days and what would that look like and what possibilities or conversations does that uh, possibility open up and so these kind of were the two big questions of like, should I leave Australia to be an artist and should we all leave Australia? That became a bit of a spectrum for that show. And I made it with aphids. So I was a performer writer, but um, aphids, Lara Toms and Eugenia Lim, who are collaborators, sort of made it with me, designed it, and we presented it at Arts House in Melbourne. So that was like the end of last year. Then we had the Christmas bushfire horror time which I don't think any of us have really been able to process <laughs> and um, I think it was the third or fourth of January I flew to Hong Kong where I was rehearsing a Cantonese version of a show that I've been making uh, that I made in 2014-15 and have performed in a, a bunch of places around Australia it's called Oedipus Schmiedipus I made it with my other collaboration post and someone from Hong Kong saw it and said, would you remake it in Cantonese with a like with two people playing me, myself and my co-star Zoe? Um, and the show each night has 25 performers who perform lines from the Western theatrical canon. And we kind of do a joke lecture around them about what we can learn about death from the Western theatrical canon. And it was a really uh, exciting, confusing concept to think about Cantonese language, Cantonese culture. But of course, Hong Kong was colonised by the Brits in the same way that we were. And so they had this shared kind of experience of learning Shakespeare in, in high school. <laughs> uh, and, and this idea of, or, or I guess, series of conversations in the artistic and larger communities around how those things influence what is high culture, what is valuable, what is considered meaningful output. So I went quickly uh, in the new year to rehearse the show. It had already happened in Hong Kong, but it was touring to Australia. So I was rehearsing it in Cantonese with this enormous, I guess, what you would call like a main stage company, but it means a very different thing in Hong Kong 
than it does in Australia. So there are like 25 full-time actors. There was like a stage crew of, I think we had 12 people. It was very bilingual room. We had various translators at various positions. It was like a very complex, big, massive program. And we were rehearsing it a little bit early. So it was going to come out in March. Then I came home uh, to work with two artists, Emma Hall and Vijay Rajan, and they were working on a show called Hurricane, which was a kind of contemporary performance piece about a massive world-changing event that the environment produced and set a whole bunch of people into crisis. I was a performer in that. Uh, It was just a development at Arts House. And the whole time, uh, also like just as a thing about my boat, like when I was in Hong Kong, the protests were on, so big mass protests. And um, the virus had just sort of been announced by China. And so I remember getting off the plane and my friends um, who, you know, were taking care of us were like, oh, just so you know, there's like another flu. Um, Apparently it's really bad. So if you want to wear masks, like you should get some. And we were like, oh, like didn't really think anything of it. And that was like on the 3rd of January. So it just feels very early that I've had this conversation going. But then we were curious to go and see the Hong Kong protests. So we did get masks because our friends who were like um, some had various levels of involvement in the protests were like, yeah, you'll get tear gas. It's no big deal. They just kept saying like, you'll get bad poo-poo for a few days. (laughs) Plays with your stomach. And so, you know, we have, we went, we were in Hong Kong and wearing a mask was quite a strange, unfamiliar experience. So we took a bunch of photos of ourselves just in the street wearing masks um, before the protest because we were like, wow, I don't know, it just felt like a novelty to be wearing a mask. It was very strange to think about how, yeah, quickly that, that imagery of the mask on the face has changed and what it has meant and will mean for this year and on, in an ongoing sense. Then I came home. Uh, sorry, after Melbourne, then I came to Adelaide uh, to present Howl with aphids again. So that's with my other collaboration. And we were working at the Art Gallery of South Australia. Some of you might have seen it. And it's this huge, big outdoor spectacle of a work that is kind of a commemoration of banned artworks, but represented and reimagined in really silly and ridiculous ways. And um, in that, we had a bunch of performers all sharing different types of we had like one scene that was at the end which was inspired by terra nullius by soda jerk and there's a lot of sort of face masks in that and everyone was sharing face masks and just swapping them around backstage which now gives me like stress just thinking about it and it was sort of like the last (laughs) live event in my life last time that my practice was really like active in the way that I had previously worked I flew home after the show opened in Adelaide to bump in Oedipus Schmidipus. So it was going to be performed in, uh, in Asia Topa Festival, which is like a festival that looks at the relationship, I suppose, as like uh, Australia as part of an Asian utopia is supposed to be the concept. Um, and we were presenting the English-speaking, English-language version and the Cantonese-Hong Kong version um, in pairing. So for the first time, they'd be like, you'd be able to see both and to compare both casts and crews. And we were getting uh, Cantonese-speaking volunteers from the Melbourne diasporic community. Um, So it was like really a lot of community development and there were like 22 people um, about to get on a plane. We were like doing the lighting plot and then um, the state got shut down. And, you know, even to talk about my journey through 2020 and my 
practice this journey is obviously really different to most of the community around Guildhouse because Melbourne's lockdown was so much different to anywhere else in Australia. And, um, you know, I was talking to Debbie the other day in preparation for this and it's very strange to try and articulate just even now that we've sort of um, begun to go back into normal world, it still really feels like everyone in Melbourne has gone through this very strange thing together where it got really, really dark. And I don't think I've ever experienced something so communally shit. <laughs> um, like it really did feel like every, even, you know, if you were lucky enough to be in a safe, warm house with a with a food, like with a hot dinner every night, so you were really privileged, you were able to work from home, you, there was still this kind of intense weight over everyone you interacted with and you know not being able to go outside for more than an hour a day just makes you a little bit loopy I think so I think there's like a lot of strangeness yeah and so I think I've had a lot of time to think about oh sorry and this is the other project that I was making this year was uh, I was I did a show last year called The Temple where I was an actor in a contemporary performance work at the Malt House with an Irish company and after the uh, Cantonese speaking, after the Asia Topa season, I was meant to fly to Ireland to continue working on a new show, which should have um, premiered, I think, actually like last week, but obviously couldn't happen. Um, yeah, so this is just like, I guess, to talk through the different contexts and arrangements that I tend to work in or the way that I've kind of eked out different uh, ways of working with different groups of people. And, yeah, I was thinking about how to talk about, like, these ideas of resilience and adaptability. I remember that um, once when I was quite young, someone said to me, what's the difference between Elvis Presley and Roy Orbison? And it's quite a hard comparison to make now because I'm, like, the youngest person who knows who Roy Orbison is. So I think for younger people, you have to think of, like, Beyonce and Katy Perry. <laughs> um, but... This guy who I was talking to, I remember he said, like, you know, Roy Orbison was always Roy Orbison. Like, he, from the start of his career as a pop singer to the end, like, he always just looked, felt, and sang like Roy Orbison. Roy Orbison is the Beyonce. Like, Beyonce is just, has always been Beyonce. When you look back now, you're like, oh, my God, what were the other two even there for? It was always Beyonce. And she's, like, always going bigger, bolder, beautiful, incredible, bizarro, right? And there's Katy Perry, that's Elvis, right? Like, obviously talented, but has kind of gone through this thing of, like, I can be whatever you want me to be, you know? I can be, there's this type of music, I can do that. I can follow this trend. I can sort of perform for the market in any way. And ultimately, working without integrity in that way, and this is, like, looking to Katy Perry's future, to what happened to Elvis, it's like you just get chewed up and spat out by the market because... You cannot conform to it at all times. <laughs> and I think that for artists, you know, we always have to have this sense of what we will do, what will be part of our practice, what we won't do. I think, you know, if I, I do some acting, I think in an acting sense, you could easily kind of imagine scenarios like, would I do a McDonald's ad? You know, that's a very simple question. Like, it's heaps of money, but they're evil. What does that bring up ethically? Is that part of my practice or does it cross out? You know, what are the ways that do work and don't work? So for me, I would say one of the interesting things is like I work in live performance. My work is live. It's not digital would be a rule that I always would have. Then though in the pandemic, 
it suddenly became really clear. Like I was very resistant to to the kind of rush to presenting work digitally. Like I was like, oh no, like we that's that's insane. Like works that are conceived to be live can't just be switched to be digital, or it's a whole different set of tools. It's a whole different way of working. Yada yada. And I really resisted. Um, and then because my lockdown was so long and like dark, I was like just going mad with not being creative. And suddenly it sort of brought something up for me, which was like. I want to make something, I want to do something. And, and a lot of it, you know, especially with like doing Oedipus for Asia Topa to the point of bumping in the show, like installing and then having to pack down and walk away. I realised like a lot of what I kind of mourned about not being able to do that show was the feeling of sharing with my peers and community the thing that I had made. And like, of course, we know this intellectually, but like it was just such a, it was just torn so so rawly from me that like, oh, so much of how I make meaning of my work is in the sharing of conversation or feedback in various forms. And so I think that for me, this during the pandemic, this idea of like working digitally or working online has sort of shifted because it has been about maintaining artistic community or encountering artistic community in different ways like at first I was quite happy to watch um a a bunch of sort of archival performances because for me I was like oh I feel like I'm a student again I'm a student of my form I'm like watching these overseas companies that I probably would never get to see and I can access their work but after a while of lockdown I was like no no it's really important for me to see the people I know and whose careers I've been following you know even if we're not friends but I've been encountering them for 10 years or or 15 years because I'm in conversation with them. My work is in, even if it's really different, it's in conversation. So I guess I started to think about this rule that I always have about like Elvis versus Roy Orbison (laughs) about like what makes up what you do and what you don't do. And certainly context is one thing, you know, like I talk about my work being context responsive when I'm making a show or like, when we did HAL at the Art Gallery of South Australia, it was responsive to the space. It was responsive to the kind of, um, you know, architectures and and presentations that happen in the Art Gallery in South Australia. But, yeah, I just became really aware that where this is kind of little uh, patchwork that we make up our, our understanding of our practice that sits between, like, context and community and wider culture and the kind of support that we get or the kind of training that we've had, the opportunities that might lead to other opportunities, you know, like you just get on a track sometimes. What I'm calling like herd mentality, which is like different to herd immunity, but like the kind of the things that your friends are doing that you either want to go in with the herd or reject and, and do something really different. And I guess that's related to like fashion, like what's fashionable. And then, of course, what's politically happening for you and, and the world and then what's possible for you in the world. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there are other, like, factors, but I just think that that's a really big time for all of us to be thinking about how and why we do what we do as artists and what's in the practice and what's informing the practice. Yeah, I could go on, but maybe it's a good time to pause. Sure. (laughs) This is so... um wonderfully rich in content mesh and I'm so pleased that we're having deep chats with you because I feel like um, there are so many um, not tangents but topics within topics when it comes to what this year has been and I also 
love that analogy of the boat because we are in such different boats and I do completely acknowledge that you know we last saw aphids in March and there was an incredible performance that the entire city really rallied around and really beautifully enjoyed and kind of celebrated to have that in in this city at that time not kind of knowing what would happen just a few days later really but our <laughs> lockdown was obviously so incredibly different to your to the Melbourne experience and um yeah our boats have been rocked in very different ways so I really thank you for being open and generous about your experience because I realize everyone's still synthesizing that time there's still so many layers of of what has happened during that time this probably seems a bit I don't know, I feel a bit uh, silly asking something so obvious because that was the last time that we saw you. But how do you feel that your your community has coped? Because obviously there's been so many different responses and online is just one response. But I imagine um, there, there's some retreating, there's some online counselling, there's so many different ways to um, to think it through, not just personally, but but through practice. What What do you think has been a really um, common observation? Um, well, I guess I think that I suppose I'm in a sort of strange position because I work, um, as I have described, you know, across a bunch of different contexts. Mm. But I suppose APHIDS as an, is an organisation. So we have a sort of organisational structure. We have a board and we are in contact with other organisations on like a sector check-in level. Mm. <laughs> um, and then, of course, there's like my friendship community and then there's the larger I suppose yeah arts community um oh I yeah I don't I honestly because I, I feel like on an institutional level if I think about what's happening in Melbourne like quite frankly what's happening is that institutions are fighting to keep existing exist yeah. like yeah. to stay alive mm. and not just close down um and there's been you know a bunch of help with that but um in terms of like what that means, it's quite difficult, I think, because when once they start surviving, it means that the help, either through presenting artists or the kind of programming they do or the, the conversations that they're having with artists about work that might happen in two years is mm -hmm. falling short because they're just doing whatever they can do to like save their own asses right now yeah. with the idea that they can then go on and for the next 20 years work with artists, you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that that combined with the fact that like artists weren't even allowed to go to their studios, mm -hmm. combined with the fact that artists couldn't hang out and have a coffee or, or like have a wine means that like it's just really shut down um, still. And like I've been working this week in a room with the aphids again, which has been super exciting, um, but also exhausting. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else, I feel like uh, if, if you are all feeling this, but like, like, how did we all be so social all the time? I have no idea. <laughs> um, and, yeah, I just think that there's been such a... And, and I'm sure that, you know, if I try and connect what I imagine is happening in Adelaide, I'm sure it, it's had that same, you know, like, line in the sand in a way where everything has stopped or has stopped the way that it was, certainly. Um, completely and I feel like there's some really different experiences again in terms of um, completely not being able to go to your studio and continue on working versus um, having more work or your work amping up so it's kind of two really 
um, polar opposite experiences where it's, um, but I think both are actually equally exhausting because the mental energy that they take on is kind of equal, really. Yeah, and I think that one of the big things about practice is that, um, you know, momentum is a really big part of your arts practice. So that might be like career momentum, like you got this show and then you got this show or you met this curator but it might be also like just the, you know, it's it's a sort of obvious thing to say, but of course, like if you're in a process and you're building and slowly working on something and then it gets stopped, not because you like, you know, mm-hmm. hit a dead end, but because you were forced to stop. It's like, there's a part of me that thinks, well, how can art, you know, as a provocation, like how can art that wasn't made in from the pandemic be, you know, be speaking to this moment right now? Like, mm maybe we should all thank <laughs> the world that we couldn't go to our studios because we do need to consider something new, like the, the world is so different in 2020. Mm-hmm. So how do we, yeah, how do we force ourselves around that corner in our thinking and our making in every area? But also I think that if you're in any way uh, younger, that can be really, really like challenging. If you were just establishing what you do, if you were, yeah, I guess precarious in any way if you're a mum who just started practicing again yeah you know like all those things that that's those so delicate delicate yeah and it's like who sticks around through those challenges it tends to be people who are comfortable privileged supported yada yada the same old boring stories (laughs) what kind of same old boring story will they they provide at the end of this pandemic will they be talking in a silo to themselves or will they have um will will their shift kind of tilt a little bit yeah yeah I think we we know the answer yeah, I think you're right there. <laughs> um, APHIS has managed to continue um, offering some really incredible opportunities to the com- community, particularly with the No Contest Art Prize. I'm wondering if you can tell me how on earth you all um, managed to devise that and deliver that at such an odd and urgent time. Um, well, I guess because we are an organiser, it was like we had a gift given to us in a lot of ways. Like we. Um, we were like the state government gave us a chunk of money as like they gave everyone every organization in australia in victoria a chunk of money to like those meant to be like survival money here's ten thousand dollars and we were really like wow we're already in such a lucky position because we were able to access job keeper when a lot of our artist friends weren't able to and will have been and continue to really really like struggle you know people who work in hospitality as their side job a few days a week or whatever it is you know a million stories um and so it really felt uh, like a strange thing to suddenly be flush at a time when everyone is struggling and also we just had been in so many conversations around uh how exhausting 2020 has been in terms of access like the kind of funds that artists could access in terms of, you know, the Australia Council put out, you know, I can't remember what they were called, like Restore, Revive or something. Adapt. Adapt, Adapt, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that just that, yeah, once again, like this idea of delicate practice, Mm. if you were struggling and then you put in an application talking about how you were struggling and then you were rejected because you weren't struggling enough or what Mm. you couldn't articulate the ways you know like I think that's a really tricky feeling a lot of really established artists that I was talking to were talking were saying that 
they could have had a very different lockdown if they had like a, a universal basic income or something, you know, of that, that yeah. they were lucky and, and accessing money, but they were spending all of their time uh, doing grants and, and sort of like re-traumatizing by telling the difficult stories about how hard their life and practice was mm. in a way that was like proving it or, or convincing an institution of its worthiness or something. Yeah, so I just think it's like it's a really complicated and of course like I don't know what the alternative is. Like, do we just get millionaires to give artists money? <laughs> no questions asked. Like, of course we all want that, but the system that we have is so imperfect. And it's I feel like um especially practices that are in any way marginalized, I think that we've come through a particular narrative in Australian practice where there has been money and the money's been uh, distributed to institutions in order for it to trickle down to artists. But at this, uh, in the last few years, the money's gotten less and less and the institutions are fighting to maintain the scale of work and the scale of organisation that they are. And artists are trying to be in relationship with those institutions and the money pool at the kind of end of the trickle down process has gotten less and less and artists are spending more and more time trying to find ways to survive and anyway so this was just like a tiny tiny thing that we could just take the money that we got and give it straight away to artists at random also because it's kind of a joke like I've been in so many of those rooms of judging or giving away grants or mm. programming and you know there's always more people that you want to give the money to than you possibly could and there is an element of chance in that room of who happens to be there or whose application, you know, you get three applications that are about a work that is about rivers. And you're like, well, we're going to choose, we're not going to like fund three river works. We did one river work, yeah. one, you know, like it's like, there's a strangeness to that. Like it's just not an exact science. So yeah, we just wanted to like give some money at a, at a completely like, um, in a completely honestly random way. And also um, to acknowledge that, yeah, that it like to make it really easy, like just like just put your name down and and that's the lottery should do. Yeah, yeah, I love it because that's I must admit at Guildhouse that's something we've had such a huge um, response to is the exhaustion of applying for grants at this time. And you know, I was having a conversation with one of our established artists just the other day who said that she had applied for eight grants and she was really lucky to receive two, but. They were all really, really big grants that it was just so exhausting to put that effort in knowing that she's still delivering the exhibition that she'd promised. It's just trying to figure out how on earth she does that differently now. Emma, I noticed that you would like to ask a question. Oh, thank you. Hey, Mish, how are you going? Hello, good. How are you? It's so good to hear your voice and have you chat with us. I really appreciated so many things about what you said and the analogy about being in a different boat in the same storm really I think is actually a very helpful way of us understanding and talking about our shared and yet very different experiences um, and I did want to just share with you that you sort of talked about this uh, sort of this strangeness of coming out of lockdown in Melbourne and this sort of like, people sort of wandering around slightly days trying to navigate the things we did without even thinking about it and Yes, our experience in Adelaide has been vastly different, but I can absolutely relate. And I think in terms of people's energy and the energy exchange that comes from being around other human beings and being in large populated areas or noisy spaces, it's just, there's so many things that are being disrupted. Um, and, you know, you spoke about that really beautifully. And one of the things I really wanted to ask you when you were talking about the patchwork um, of things that you've observed and the experiences, 
I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts on what you have felt, and perhaps if you feel comfortable speaking on behalf of some of the other people that you work with in your various collectives, about the impact of how the government has spoken or not spoken about artists and their work in the whole response to this pandemic widely reported most widely you know most uh, affected sector and yet it's been relatively invisible I wondered if you wouldn't mind sharing your thoughts and it would be interesting to hear other people's in the in the um the conversation tonight about that response because I think that is a really profound issue yeah I mean it's huge right it's so huge um I think one of the things that I've been uh, I guess prompted to think about this year is that Perhaps one of the reasons that a lot of people found the pandemic so traumatizing or the lockdown so traumatizing is like, is it question mark indicative of how safe we feel? Like I was just, I suppose, in this idea of, you know, same boat, uh, same storm, different boats. Like I think some people are really used to upheaval, <laughs> you know, environmental upheaval, social upheaval and um I think that we have a relatively overworked but um, safe life <laughs> in the arts. And, you know, like I think that, um, that I think of the kind of classic like Maslow's hierarchy of needs about like, you know, fulfill, like getting food and um, water and air is obviously enormously important. You know, being safe from um, violence is important. Um, and then this idea of like, or I suppose like, how do we talk about the importance of art making for ourselves, for each other, for our community? Like it is um, that idea of like cultural fulfillment, um, making meaning of life. Like most of us, obviously in this Zoom room, but in our community have dedicated our lives to this thing. And so I think when it was ripped away, it's suddenly it's just like, um, you know, it ripped away like in a, in a kind of panicky moment as well, I think, where it was like, what is this pandemic? How bad is this going to get? How long is this going to get? It wasn't like, like, I think if now looking at myself in March, if someone had said, in a year's time, it's going to be a bit calmer, <laughs> then you would kind of have that in your head and you're like, great, I'll learn French. <laughs> but I think that there was this thing of like, everyone you know is losing all their work and all the big people who are supposed to be really solid, like, the Melbourne Theatre Company, I don't know, you know, suddenly they're talking about like, we might not make it through the year. And you're like, holy shit. Like, you know, I think that in those times, I can only think of like the millions of terrible war movies I've seen. But I think certainly that's when we turn to leadership, you know, like, and, and I think that even within the arts, like we looked at certain people who could speak, who could maybe guide us. Um, we looked at our artistic elders and people who've been through like, you know, been through ups and downs <laughs> and could perhaps give us like a bit of a bit of big picture speak, you know, like even on, I think it's on SBS or something like Uncle, Uncle Jack Charles has, well, there's like some little um, bite-sized, I mean, it must be ABC, there's the little bite-sized stories about the pandemic and he says, you know, like anyone who lives, who lived through the AIDS crises of the 80s didn't feel so unfamiliar with the, the, the pandemic or the kind of ways that we were getting information about the pandemic, you know, and these long stories, these long lives, um, and then how that can give us leadership. And I think that there's like two things for me. There's the thing of like, what's happening to universities, what's happening to funding, like as an artist who's practicing now as like a grown up, but who very much came from a working class upbringing. I think of the artists who are coming from the worlds that I was in, 
and what pathways they might have through to being in the arts in any way, in culture in any way, or in fact, like doing an arts degree, which is like, let's be honest, most people who did an arts degree ended up not working in the arts, but, you know, can have a great dinner party. <laughs> so I think that there's a war on ideas, there's a war on critical thinking, and there's a war on culture in so many ways that happens from our politicians. And that sort of feels like it's been happening for a long time. Certainly in my whole career, it feels like when I came into the arts as, as at uni, I remember all my teachers saying like, oh, you'll, you'll never be able to pay your rent. <laughs> like it was so easy to live on the dole when we were, you know, in the nineties and just like making, you know, like there's always this story of it getting worse and worse for artists in this country is, been happening for a while but it feels like the Morrison government has just accelerated that's a that's a truth and I'm like mm -hmm. I'm resigned to that in some ways but the kind of like on the on the Maslow's hierarchy of needs like I'm used to him taking away my <laughs> safe <laughs> food and and shelter like I'm not I'm not living in Scandinavia like I know I'm gonna have to fight to get those things <laughs> as an artist as a as, as a vocation mm -hmm. but the kind of like spiritual cultural messaging that our government has given and the like complete like lack of language and, and I don't know like I think there's something in like deep in my soul that um, feels battered by that in a way that I think in the arts in Australia we spend a lot of time like even amongst ourselves like justifying our existence apologizing for our existence not apologizing for sometimes things like being too weird or too complicated like I'm all for I'm very I try to make work that is very accessible but I think also sometimes we just waste a lot of time contextualizing things so that because we feel apologetic for something and I think that's you know you know we, I, we all kind of um I don't know imagine what it must be like in Germany or whatever you know <laughs> but, um, there's no I don't know there's no utopia because I think you know having once you spend time in those places you see that rhetoric and, and fun you know it's not perfect no. and this place is really special but yeah I do think there's something there's like a deep wound that could have mm. gone the other way exactly there was a, a real wonderful opportunity to but I think that as you say this is a uh, an ongoing trajectory uh, that has been we've been on for some time but the other point that I was very curious to explore with you was um, your role in collaborations and artist-led organisations I think is very exciting and I think there is you know over history we can point to many occasions where things looked pretty dire and pretty shite and artist-led action was actually vital to reimagining what futures look like and in fact not just for the artistic community at all but for community at large so you know are you within your artist-led communities is that conversations that you're having um, or is it something that you have all the time and it's just it's continuing on well I certainly are when when I know that Emma and I were both at the Arts Day on the Hill last year and again this year which is NABA's program or I guess big day of advocacy and representation for the arts on a federal parliamentary level to parliamentarians and I had a meeting with Tony Burke this year and I was talking to him about the new deal that you know the New Deal in the US and the kind of way that major projects and artists were a way to spend, you know, spend our way out of the recession. And I, and I was like, you really got to get in there, Tony, <laughs> and just like talk about the New Deal because we know it works. Like it worked for the US and it created a lot of the kind of mid-century art movements, which we're mm -hmm. still excited by and influenced by. But yeah, I think that another one of APHID's programs that we run is called, these, we do these like APHID's drop-in centres. And they're, um, they're, I guess we're always interested in holding context or holding space for intergenerational 
and mm. cross art form discussion, sometimes for really long, you know, for a year long discussion and sometimes for really discrete periods. So I have this idea of a drop in center and you can just book, they're just like, we just advertise them and then it's like, we'll just do a day and we do like this year it was like Zooms and there were um, half an hour each with one of us and we would just like workshop an idea with you. It could be like a creative problem, could be a, so, um, you know, producing thing. It could be a, what should my portfolio look like? How do I contact this? You know, anything big or small. But the, yeah, it was very interesting to me that just like how isolated people, and this was national, it wasn't just Melbourne or Victoria, how isol- how that isolation of arts practice was really affecting, like in, during the pandemic year, was really affecting people on a personal, like on a mental health level. And I think that, you know, obviously I'm not the first person to notice that, but I think that it's certainly given me pause to think about how we nurture or build artistic community. And, you know, I think that's this sort of strange alchemy between institutions and and presentation context. And just like, obviously going out and hanging out is the most simple, but most profound thing that artists have done for a long time, for, you know, hundreds of years. But yeah, I just think about, I think it's like for us to think about how we how we exist in that community outside of just seeing friends and supporting them, but to also think about yeah how we can grow or service community. And it's really tricky, I think, because artists are often, or especially at the moment, feeling overwhelmed or feeling at the edge of burnout. But I suppose it's like, how can that be, I don't know, this is a bad word, but nourishing. <laughs> yeah, so how can like the resources that you do have be used reciprocally with each other and you know like I certainly started out that way with just like no money but lots of time as a young artist um and we would just hold shows for each other and and like in a very like similar mode to most artists run initiatives which is just like we all muck in make it happen see each other's work and I think that the first thing I think is that we all we should always remember that what that means and what that feels like and second of all I think that as we progress through our careers we should always remember how we're mucking in for each other and what we're getting out of that from each other. Mm. Mish, I have a question from Henry Wolf. How do you stay true to the values within your practice so that you can be the Beyonce in the situation? <laughs> uh, that's how it's like, I feel like giving a talk where I'm like, how can you be the Beyonce? It's like, I'm like, basically I'm making mugs now. Like I'm making coffee mugs. <laughs> it's like first of all you get uh 150 assistants (laughs) well I think that's a thing of or I guess why I tried to why I bring it up tonight at the end of my talk of 2020 is that I think we're always assessing and reassessing these things you know like um I think that some of the big questions of our arts career or survival and some of the big questions of our arts practice and our arts, you know, what we're doing, that we're going to keep asking the same questions. If we're lucky, we're going to keep asking them for our whole life, you know, and 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 that's really what a line of inquiry is, is that you just keep going. But I think for me, I guess that's the thing of like, as a performer, knowing what you do and what you don't do. Um, so I think that thing of self-knowledge And that doesn't mean that like, oh, I just do like, you know, I think we've all been through phases where you're like, I just want to work with plaid, you know, like all my work's going to be like plaid. 
<laughs> patterns you know like I don't you can change of course and evolve but I think it's about criticality and about thinking about well where does it feel like I'm doing my work and where does it feel like I'm just responding like it's funny just I just reminded myself of um I, I went to an Eileen Miles talk um in Sydney Writers Festival it might have been two years ago now and they spoke about you know, like when you start, you have these ideas and you just write them down um, and it sort of just comes out. And then someone says, can you do a newsletter? Yeah, I can do a newsletter. Can you do um, an introduction to my academic book? Yeah, I can do that. And then there's like working in all these different contexts and the way that they articulate it is that then it gets harder and harder to step back and go, hang on, do I do newsletters? Like, do I do, do I really want to write in academic context? Like, because you're just responding to the opportunity without thinking about if it's really creatively satisfying for you. So I think it's just like having that criticality as you're trying to navigate. That's why I talk about one of the things of um, the, my patchwork is like possibilities or opportunities. Cause I think that they're both really important. Like opportunities are amazing. You might get an opportunity to do something, but like, it might just be like, Oh yeah. Can you do a performance? We've only got a hundred dollars but it's at a really big museum and um, we need you to make, it's like, it's on Friday. So like, you've got like two days to, cause someone dropped it out and you're like, oh my God, I could just stand and be like a statue person. But like, I'm not going to feel good about that. Mm -hmm. It's not really what I do. I don't have anything ready. Sometimes you have to say no, you know, but then it's like possibilities. It's like, I could sit and like, I don't know, it's hard to talk in abstract or to try to think of, <laughs> make up my own examples. I think, I really just think it's about, that the most important thing you own is your studio practice, you know, like, because then if you're going in, even if you don't have a studio, <laughs> if you just have an hour of the day or mornings over your coffee where you're daydreaming and writing your book, like that you're thinking outside of the, the context of capitalism and institutions, you're just doing the thing that you do and, following what you're interested in or daydreaming, imagining, whatever it is. But there has to be some area that's just you and everything else comes out of that as opposed to just being the Katy Perry and trying to, you know, swim towards where everything already is. And I feel like it's really hard as well <laughs> if you've been offered an opportunity with someone that you respect or in an institution that you admire and it's not quite the opportunity that you want. It's not quite on track with who you are. But you don't want to say no to it because you're thinking about the possibilities and what it could lead to. And you think, well, this could just be the stepping stone and now I'm in their realm and they'll think of me for that other thing. So it's kind of like, oh, am I going to get a bad rep if I say no to that? So, yeah, it is. Um, I feel like that's a really common thing for artists to kind of come up against in terms of knowing exactly who they are and also being confident in verbalising whoever's inviting them to say, this isn't quite what I do, but you know, can we think about something on this track? Yeah, I think that's the thing is most of the time it's not black and white. Like most of the time it's not, hey, Mish Grigor, can you come and sing the main role in the Harry Potter musical? Like, <laughs> because no one's going to ask me that. I don't have the talent, interest, community. Like I'm not in that world, you know, mm -hmm. and it would be a very easy no. But it's the hard ones are when you're like, oh, it's a bit what I do or like it's almost there or the conditions are almost right. But I don't think... Like, I, I know it takes me eight months to do one painting. Like, I know that, you know, or I know that I need this much rehearsal or like, or I know that the week before I'm doing this other thing and I actually need that 
space and I won't be able to dedicate, you know, like it's, I think you learn through getting it wrong, actually, a lot of the time. It's like you learn like, oh, man, I really, you know, I knew I had it in my gut going in that that would be too hectic or that that would be wrong or that, yeah, I think you just learn through practice, unfortunately. I want to ask you another question about um, political leadership. And I'm mm. thinking about, you know, your, you mentioned earlier that aphids were able to um, make an offering based on the funding that they were receiving. And being especially that aphids is such a politically um, confronting and urgent group of, of people, do you ever feel like you might tip that edge and suddenly you're not receiving funding much like, I mean, I guess soda jerks still receive their funding, but there was quite a, um, you know, a lot of promotion around that, which probably worked in their favour, to be honest. But really, is that something that um, that you, you you worry about as an organisation? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, we, like, that's the weird thing, I think, for us, um, as it's, it's our first ever institutional position. And I think that when you're inside of an institution, you're not just responsible for yourself, you're responsible for this other entity. And, you know, I guess on an organisational level, we're really lucky that we have a board who really understand our, like, values and really supportive of us being a bit, like, bolshy and cheeky in the world. But, yeah, I think that this idea of risk and... Um, what we, you know, like the Casey Jenkins example was really interesting. Um, I don't know if people are familiar with Casey's work um, and, and the kind of re recent things that have happened this year with her practice because it was um, at Vitals. Do, do people know that? I don't know what the room Yeah, I see some nods and I see some. Do you want to unpack it a little bit? Well, yeah, just that um, so she was, she's an artist, performance artist, makes very in-your-face work and is doing an ongoing project about, I guess, insemination. I think it's called Immaculate Conception or yeah. some play on that, yeah. yeah. Um, where she's, like, lively, live streaming her, like, you know, putting a sperm donor's sperm into her vagina. Mm. And I don't, you know, that she got a lot of one of those strange moments. I think that, you know, often it's just like this sort of storm in a teacup, like all of a sudden the um, conservative world was, like, looking at her and, um, you know, she got a bunch of really violent feedback. But then um, some institutions got really freaked out and one of those included Australia Council and they, she had received money. There was money for a stream, as I understand it. A live stream, I, I think? Yeah, but she had, like, um, the she received one of those grants which was about career development. So it was, like, a, a big chunk of money for a whole, like, a year-long thing of, like, doing a whole bunch of stuff and they took the money back or they hadn't paid her yet or something like that. I'm going to get the details wrong. It was way back, like, six weeks ago. <laughs> <my brain's> <laughs> <laughs> <Any> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I guess we, in speaking publicly against that, we were aware that we received money from the Australia Council and so, like, in a way they are an investor or, or a, uh, they have a... We, ha we have to have a good relationship with them and it's not just like me as an artist speaking. It's like I'm representative of this company that's been going for, I think, 27 years now and I, that's, a, that's a weight on my shoulders. Yeah, and I think that we all, I mean, I'm really lucky at APHIS because we have the three of us as co-directors together 
to talk that through. But I, you know, I think ultimately it's like, I don't know, I, I just think it's like, how do you sleep at nine or something, you know, like you have to, I remember one time at, uh, you know, at the Australian Theatre Forum in about 2010 or something, maybe earlier, it must have been 2006 or eight, I don't know. I feel like I tell this story all the time where there was a women in theatre working group and it was like down in the basement and there were like 30 women and one man who was gay man, of course, and they were putting, it was when the Australia Council was putting together their, um, they had like a platform paper, it's not called that, but um, it was in, uh, about women in, in main stage contexts in theatre. And a lot of women were sharing stories about, you know, their experiences. And I was like one of the youngest people there. And I was quite, you know, young and bolshy and vocal and like, this is fashion. Like, <laughs> and this older woman who I didn't know at, at the thing previous, turned to me at the end and she was like, just be careful, you know, just be careful because people don't like outspoken artists. Like don't, she said to me, I remember like I'm paraphrasing, but very clearly the image, don't sacrifice your career on the altar of feminism. And it was like a, a senior artist speaking to a young artist about like, I don't know, shutting up, you know, like, wow. and it, it really struck me. It was really just like, okay, what kind of world do we want to live in? Like, I, I think... For me, I want to live in a world, not that I'm in any way like superior or perfect, like aphids fucked up all the time, but we want to live in a world where we can have rigorous debate with each other, not just about the work, but about how we make the work, about the art world that we make and about trying to think about how power works and how, you know, we're all living in late capitalism. We've all been socialised in the West. That means we're all fucked <laughs> like we're all taking that that's how we've made reality mm. so of course the art world's going to reflect that reality and we have to sort of break it and pull it and bend it together by talking to each other about the mistakes that we make what was your reaction to that comment to you at the time oh I mean I was like I don't know like, I was like 22 or something I was just like mm. okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't yeah I didn't have a like now I'd be like Let's talk about what that means. <laughs> What's happened to you where you have that point of view? Let's unpack this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mish. This has been a really wonderful conversation going in many directions, but I think all very, very necessary directions. So thank you kindly. Um, does anyone have any final questions or comments? Questions, really. We don't want comments. Thank you so much, Mish. Thank you for having me. I look forward to seeing what uh, you do next and um, what AFIDS does next. And Oedipus Schmidipus, I hope it, it um, comes to Adelaide. Comes, to comes Adelaide. back from the dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.